everyone. My name is Archita and welcome to another episode of the LSE Focal Point podcast. Today, I'm very excited to be joined by Dirk Effenberger. Dirk is the head of investment risk at UBS. He holds a PhD in economics from the University of Münster and started his career as an economist at Deutsche Bank in Germany. After spending four years there, he spent two years working in insurance as a senior economist at Swiss Re in Zurich and has been at UBS for the 15 years since, working his way up from senior fixed income strategist to his role today as head of investment risk. He's the lead author of a number of economic and investment research publications, including UBS Global Risk Radar, and is a guest lecturer at Coursera and the University of St. Gallen. Dirk, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well, thank you. And thanks for having me at your podcast. It's our pleasure, great to have you on. To kick things off, could you tell us a little more about your current role at UBS and what that entails on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, very happy to. Well, as you said in your introduction, I'm heading the investment risk team of the chief investment office at UBS. So in very simple terms, this means that the, the purpose of the team is actually to protect the wealth of the clients that are invested in our portfolios. So on a daily basis, the team identifies key market risks, um, builds scenarios around those, runs stress tests to see how different types of uh, risk actually impact markets and portfolios. And finally, the team is also in charge of um, proposing hedging ideas and portfolio changes based on those uh, risk considerations. And all of these um, feeds into the internal um, investment decision process. But another aspect of our work, and especially my work, is also to communicate our key views to the outside world via, for example, the uh, Global Risk Radar publication, which you mentioned in the beginning. That sounds fascinating. And why investment risk? What are some of the factors and personal skills that led you to the role you have today? Well, that's a very good question. Uh, Probably not easy to answer, but first of all, I think you need to be interested in financial markets. You need to be passionate about financial markets and also interested in, in, in applied math and risk methodologies. But I think more importantly, you need to stay curious and stay creative all the time. Because first of all, the topics you deal with on a daily basis, uh, on a frequent basis, change all the time. So the, the last two years, I was confronted with the question how a pandemic crisis would impact global economy and would impact um, global markets. And these days, and the team is more confronted with the question how a geopolitical crisis and a war will actually hit global financial markets. So very different topics, so stay curious. And secondly, I mentioned, um, please stay also creative. It's important um, to stretch your imagination. When we build scenarios, you need to start thinking about the impossible, really. That's important as well. So although we are in a very technical environment, staying creative and staying curious is very, very important. And maybe finally, um, don't be a pessimist when you uh, look at investment risk. You need to have a balanced view across downside as well as upside scenarios, because actually missing out the positive scenario means also missing out investment opportunities, which which is a risk to investors as well. Yeah, no, that sounds really interesting. It must be an especially exciting time to work in investment, considering the rise of stakeholder capitalism and this consequent focus on impact investing. As global priorities seem to shift, how has this changed the work that you do and what further changes are you hoping to see? 
Yeah, I absolutely agree. These are exciting times. Uh, you mentioned two new important drivers of the changing um, investment landscape. There are probably many others. Um, digitalization, the way younger generations invest, their usage of social media to actually invest, etc. But what I would say, however, is that the investment, investment principles uh, remain the same. The framework you need to apply remains the same. So for example, we start with a global macro picture. How will global growth, how will global inflation develop over the next six to 12 months? That remains the same irrespective um, of the different drivers in, in place. So as an investor, I think it's very important that you have a framework you stick to and you have a map which actually helps you to navigate through these different drivers. Yeah, great. So sustainability and ESG in particular are headline grabbing terms right now with businesses racing to better align with people's values as the network economy seems to demand collective risk management. Some wealth managers, however, seem to oppose this, especially if it comes at the expense of financial performance. Does it feel like ESG is here to stay or is it still a risk and a bet against the norm? Well, I do think ESG is here to stay. People increasingly try to align investments with their own beliefs. I think that's a good thing. I also believe that this more value-oriented investing and does not come at the cost of lower return on your capital, actually. Uh, we see this with our own ESG portfolios, for example, that have been performing very well. And I, thought, and I, and I also think um, it makes sense because if you, for example, invest in bonds, which are issued by the World Bank, let's say, you can probably earn a premium for lower liquidity uh, relative to, for example, US government bonds. So at the end, I think uh, you can aim for performance while also investing in something you believe in or uh, in something which actually fulfills a higher purpose for you. Yeah, best of both worlds. As the emergence of big data and its ability to offer vast amounts of information, including that in real time, reshaped any of what you do? And if so, what are some of the opportunities and challenges this presents? Yeah, so data availability and also better access to different types of real-time data has definitely changed the way, the way we work. So for example, we increasingly track activities of consumers to actually how consumer spending will develop over time. That's an important task, which was um, particularly relevant during the pandemic uh, crisis. That helps, helped us a lot to actually um, see how consumer spending will develop going forward. There are also some interesting things right now. For example, given lockdown situation in China, we currently look at, uh, at port data, port traffic data in Chinese uh, ports. That also helps us to see how supply chain is being disrupted. So all of these new type of data are important and we try to integrate into our daily work. The challenge, I have to say, of course, is to be able to distinguish between kind of the value adding data and noise. And to distinguish between the two is, I think it's more art than science and probably comes with experience too. But especially for, for juniors, it, it's a learning process to separate between news and, and, and noise and getting maybe sometimes too excited about fancy statistics. And does social media form any part of the data that you might be collecting? People's sentiment towards things? Yeah, we try to to increasingly um, integrate this into, into investment decision process. One, before we actually do this, we need to find a link between data mm -hmm. and investment performance. And 
in some instances, there is no link or it's hard to find a link, which we are sometimes skeptical to use specific type of, of data. And for social media, that's probably the case, but we are looking into this to potentially find some leading indicators for how asset classes and equities, for example, perform as well. Great. And with digitalization allowing investing to become more accessible than ever, as we mentioned, do you think there are safety concerns for those who may not be as financially literate? Well, yeah, there might even be safety concerns by those who who are financially literate. I I think it's a two-way obligation, right? The provider of an app has to make sure that the app is secure. And then on the other end, the user of an app needs to make uh, sure that he or she sticks to specific rules in, in that sense. I, I think that it's fair to have um, concerns about this, but if you stick to rules, I think it, it will going all right. Yeah. And another buzzword right now is cryptocurrency, with many people excited about the potential of decentralized finance and others still doubtful. What are your thoughts? Yeah, that's certainly a very interesting uh, topic. And I think the the technology behind this is interesting. And also we see uh, long-term value in actually companies that benefit from the applications based on the underlying um, technology, which is distributed ledger technology, for example. If it comes to decentralizing finance, that's difficult because I think it's still a long way to go until cryptocurrency will establish as a way of decentralizing finance. There are certainly other apps available which allow decentralized transactions to, for example, transfer money. Where I'm most skeptical about cryptocurrency is to use it as a substitute for money, really. Just look at how volatile the value of crypto is it the price can increase a lot, but it can also decline quite yeah. significantly. So in my view, it's very hard for crypto to compete with money. And I don't think crypto will actually replace money anytime soon. Great. And with environmental considerations of the global economy that we live in, do you expect deglobalization to continue? And what effect does this have on global investing? Yeah, that's a very good point. We have probably seen peak globalization, I think, a few years ago. So global trade as a percentage of global GDP has already declined. But that's not only because consumers have a preference for domestically produced products uh, as a a result of what you say are environmental considerations. It's also due um, to rising tensions between countries and nations. Um, that's quite visible at the moment, of course, but it has been visible in previous years um, as well. It's just three years ago when we had the trade conflict between the US and, and China. And frankly, that's, that's, that trade conflict is still going on in the background. So what does that mean then for, for investing if we are on a path of deglobalization? Well, two things maybe. So less global means major companies have to adjust global supply chain and potentially localize their productions. And this requires investment in automation and robotics, uh, which is definitely an interesting area um, for investors. And then secondly, and maybe counterintuitively, I think it still pays off to stay globally um, diversified. So even in an environment of less globalization. It's very important to diversify your assets across different countries and sectors, in my view. Yeah. And what are some of the ways in which the pandemic has, um, you know, kind of changed the landscape that we're looking at? 
Yeah, I think it has um, changed the way in, in many respects. So first of all, obviously, there's more support from governments for healthcare companies, more support to, to actually produce healthcare products um, locally as, as well. And also definitely for companies, it, was a, it has caused a mind shift because many companies have started to actually localize their production and be more cautious about global supply chain. Also, the on-time delivery has changed a bit and has changed um, the way business companies do business. Do you think there are any risks that the pandemic has posed that we're still yet to see the consequences? That's a good um, question as, as well. We have to see how the pandemic actually develops over time. It's not over yet, right? We cannot exclude that we see yet another new variant um, coming out, which might be more dangerous than the, than the last one. That's not the typical way how virus mutate over over time. Over over time, but that's certainly still a risk uh, attached um, to it. And I think uh, people stay cautious about traveling too much, for example. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, what the pandemic crisis has really accelerated is, for example, using virtual meetings, working from home, etc. So without the pandemic crisis, I think most of us would still work from, from office. And in the meantime, I think the kind of flexible and hybrid um, working environment has it established itself. Yeah. And what do you think the long run implications might be of a much larger proportion of the population starting to invest their money as people become more financially literate? Could it mean more seed money for entrepreneurs or could it lead to the same few stocks becoming overvalued? Well, both is probably right. Um, there's always a risk that popular stocks become more overvalued, if, if, especially if, if those stocks are overhyped in social um, media. That's certainly a risk. But if, if more people in, in invest, that also means um, you have more capital available for startup companies, which is definitely a good thing because capital for startup companies encourage innovation. And that's, that's clearly um, something very beneficial for the overall economy. Yeah. And are there any business challenges that you wish more people were thinking about right now? Yeah, I think one challenge that was underestimated for, for a while is actually the increasing competition between different social systems or social contracts, huh, so to say. So the democratic systems and ideas are competing with, yeah, let's say autocratic systems and ideas. And, and that's not just true for, for different countries as we see at the moment, I think it's also increasingly the case within established uh, democracies and, and the way we do business and the way you organize your supply chain very much depends on uh, whether you are in a democratic country or in a more autocratic country. And I think it's important for the business, but it's as equally important for investors um, when they invest um, money around the globe. Yeah, great. And thinking a little bit more about your career once again, what are some of the factors that have led you to stay at UBS for as long as you have? Very good question. I think there are many reasons, but maybe two I would like to stress. The first one, what really keeps me awake at night is that I have to deal with very different topics. So I learn a lot. Even though I'm in my position or I'm at UBS for around 15 years, I learn on a daily basis. I, I never thought 
about becoming a medical expert, but after, after two years of dealing with the pandemic crisis, I'm probably still not a medical expert, but I, I, I think I was able to increase my knowledge about the subject quite, quite, a, quite a bit. So that's super interesting. And then secondly, clearly what I find very fascinating is the very global setup we work in. So the chief investment office is a truly global organization. So I have calls with colleagues around the globe on a daily basis. We speak many different languages. We come from very different nationalities. That's, that's very exciting. And that's something I, I really like. Yeah. And do you think your PhD led to some of this interest or kind of capability to keep learning and wanting to keep learning? So you don't have to have a PhD to work within the Chief Investment Office. I think there are many other ways to get you into this position. Where it clearly helped is to, to kind of generate the technical expertise in analyzing things. And also it clearly helped in thinking logically and, and structurally. But certainly there are other ways to learn how to think logically, I would argue. So very different ways on how you get actually into, into this position. PhD may help, but you don't have to have a PhD necessarily. Yeah. And what should students interested in a career in investing be reading? And how can they start developing a big picture and long-termist view, especially when the world around them feels so short-termist? Yeah, excellent. I think developing this big picture view is extremely important for making good investment decisions. There are many books about how to calculate the fair value of an asset or about portfolio optimization. That's all good. That's all important but applying a big picture is at least equally important, I think. So my recommendation is read about economic history, for example, and to have a bit of a bigger picture. Mm. Um, so when I look into my specific areas of financial crisis, my, my recommendation would be, for example, the, the, the book about history of financial crisis from Charles Kindleberger. That's, that's a very interesting book. As we are currently in an environment of higher inflation, read about past episodes of higher inflation, what it means for, for investors, where we know history doesn't repeat itself, but we can learn from those periods, I think. Yeah. And what about perhaps interdisciplinary thinking as well? Absolutely. Well, I mentioned Charles Kindleberger's book, and if you read this, this is very much about um, uh, manias as well. So very much about psychology on top of um, financial market knowledge. So I, I very much agree. Yeah, great. And finally, rounding off with our signature question, if you could give one piece of advice to our student listeners currently at or graduating from university, what would it be? Yeah. I think it's important to follow your passion. So follow what you like doing. There's a very high chance that you're actually good at what you like doing. So yeah, follow your passion. It, it might actually take some time to figure out what your passion is, but I think it's definitely worth figuring it out. And actually there's a great speech by, by Steve uh, Jobs, he, yeah. he, which he gave to students at Stanford University a few years ago about how he found his, his passion. So have a look. That's really inspiring. Yeah, no, I know the one you're talking about. It's definitely a great read. listen as well. Well, thank you so much, Doug, for your time. I'm sure our listeners will really enjoy this episode. Um, thank you for taking the time to speak to us. My pleasure.